Thank you, Kevin, for shepherding us for the throne of grace and allowing us to set our minds on things above and consider what a great Savior and Lord we have and what a joy, too, we have to be here this morning and to come and to worship Christ together and come into the household of God as a family His family. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And uh, if you would go down to verse 15. Um, And uh, the epistle to the Romans, this is Paul writing what many... Consider his his um, summary epistle, if you will, the distillation of all that he stands for and all that he believes in. And um, it's interesting as you consider the epistle to the Romans, because in, in in some sense, I've been told by one dear friend and professor of mine that it was basically the Apostle Paul's uh, mission report. He is planning on going to Spain. He wants to take the gospel. He needs to stop at Rome on the way to the furthest portions of the Roman Empire because he has been called by God to be a missionary. He has been called to bring the good news to people who have not heard. That is Paul's calling. And he is looking to the church in Rome, which he has not yet visited, in order to fellowship and minister with them and receive their support and help. So this is like his missions report letter. And he's letting them know who he is and where he stands and the gospel that he stands for. The truth of which he stands upon. So that they, to some extent, can evaluate him and consider, are we going to partner with this man in ministry? Is he a good servant of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And uh, so as we come down in this first chapter... To verse 15, the Apostle Paul shares the heart behind this epistle. And he shares the heart behind all that the Apostle Paul is and does and aspires to do. And he expresses his desire to come and visit the saints in Rome in person. Why? Verse 15, he says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then in verse 16 and 17, he explains why he is so eager to come in person and to preach the gospel to them. They've already heard the gospel, but he wants to come and preach the gospel to them himself, personally. He wants to bear the message personally. It's not enough that others are there, that Prisca and Aquila may be there. It's not enough that there's a whole list of people at the end of Romans who have some affiliation with Paul who are there. Paul wants to come personally. His heart is burning with that desire. Why? Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
What is this gospel that he's talking about? Well, he goes on in the rest of Romans and he explains to us what it is. And in fact, as you read through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, Paul comes back to the gospel over and over again. And he'll give an explanation, then he'll give us in a nugget the gospel. He comes back over and over and over again so that we will never forget Jesus and we will never forget the gospel. Sadly, something that we in the North American modern church or postmodern church, if you will, we, we continually do. And, and to some degree, that's why the Lord has left us these letters. And that's why the Lord reminds us because He's a gracious God and a good Father and He knows we need this reminding. But those little books that we've been through together, the nine Marks books by Mark Dever, they sort of summarize Romans with this definition. The Gospel. What is it? It's the good news... Not of what we have done. It's the good news of what God has done to save sinners through the sacrificial death and the resurrection of His Son, Christ Jesus. This, brothers and sisters, is not only what the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans is all about. This is what the entirety of the Apostle Paul's life and ministry and every relationship and every work project is all about. And this is what all his epistles are all about. At the end of the day, as you read through all the epistles, even those which the modern scholars debate and say they're not his for all these different reasons, at the end of the day, you read through them and you see the heart of Paul. And it's tied up in Romans 1, 15 and 16. And this, brothers and sisters, is what we've been studying this past summer. This is what First and Second Timothy and Titus are essentially all about. They are essentially Christ's call to Timothy and to his local churches to not be ashamed of the gospel. To not be ashamed of the gospel at a time when the apostles are becoming increasingly unpopular in the local church, the gospel is becoming increasingly unpopular and unfashionable in the local church. And the teachings of men and the ways of the world and sort of a mixture hybrid prosperity type gospel or workspace gospel is becoming increasingly popular. Popular, And as a result, many in the church are becoming increasingly ashamed or embarrassed of the gospel. They're becoming increasingly ashamed and embarrassed of the Apostle Paul. They're becoming increasingly embarrassed and ashamed of Timothy. All while Timothy, you have to understand. They have to explain about Timothy or they have to explain about the Apostle Paul or they have to give excuses or give explanations for them. They have to defend them increasingly embarrassed of these two men and increasingly embarrassed of the message that they teach and preach and stand for. Because in the eyes of the world, it is ridiculous and pathetic. So as we come to 2 Timothy, our text this morning, 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for what? 
the gospel by the power of God. Brothers and sisters, what is a good servant of Christ Jesus? Who should be leading and teaching and serving in the local church? Who should be elders? Who should be deacons? Who should be heading up ministries? Brothers and sisters, according to the Apostle Paul, as he exhorts Timothy, a good servant of Christ Jesus is a servant who is not ashamed of the gospel, but instead is willing to share in suffering for the gospel. To share in suffering for the gospel in our marriages, in our ministries, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our church, in our workplace, not by our strength or our power, but by the power of God, by the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit, in part because I believe 2 Timothy and Titus very much complement and complete the story that's begun in 1 Timothy. And it sheds light on what the Apostle Paul is trying to do in 1 Timothy and the exhortations and the commands that are coming. And we start to see the end of the story. So I'm sort of jumping ahead a little bit so that as we go back this year through Logos and we go back in the pulpit through 1 Timothy, you'll have a little bit of a perspective. 2 Timothy 1.1 Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 
This is the Word of the Lord. From these God-breathed words, brothers and sisters, that are in the Apostle Paul's second epistle to Timothy, it's pretty obvious as you read through these words, but then as you go through the rest of 2 Timothy, that since the Apostle Paul's first letter to Timothy, life and ministry in Ephesus has not gotten easier, either for the Apostle Paul or for Timothy. In fact, the Apostle Paul now is not only in prison, but he's getting ready, it would seem as you read the rest of the letter, he's getting ready to get his head cut off. And he's cold and he doesn't have enough clothing, and he's lonely, and he's been abandoned by many who served with him in the ministry. In no small part, the suggestion is at least some of them, it's because they're embarrassed, or they're ashamed, or maybe they have lost faith in the Apostle Paul and the mission that he is on. Life has not gotten easier for the Apostle Paul, and life has not gotten easier for Timothy. And there's some suggestion as we read through this that life has gotten harder and more painful for Timothy in part because he has responded to the Apostle Paul's first letter. The exhortation to faithfully keep and teach Christ's commands and words without compromise. To correct the local church because they're abandoning or walking away from the gospel. To set things in order in worship in the way in which Christ Jesus has laid out in His Word. With men leading in prayer, with women not teaching in public places, with elders and deacons who stand up and characterize the doctrine of Jesus Christ in both their life and in their homes. Well, all of these things, it would seem, as Timothy may have embarked on these things or tried to remain in Ephesus, he's taking a beating and a pounding for doing it. Paul writes, verse 4, he talks about the joy of remembering and praying for Timothy day and night as I remember, verse 4, your tears. Timothy is weeping. He has been brought to tears. Brothers and sisters, as we begin to keep and teach Christ's commands by faith, many times we expect that our marriages and our ministry and our work and our church are suddenly going to become fabulously better and easier and more wonderful. But the reality as we read through Scripture is that as we faithfully keep the teachings and the commands of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, as we follow and serve Him and as we walk with Him, life and ministry certainly does become sweeter because we are walking with Him. But it does not get easier. In fact, very frequently life and ministry gets harder and it gets more painful and we get weaker. And this is because in love, God brings good servants 
of Christ Jesus to the cross. It's not an accident, brothers and sisters. This is where He brings us. And this brings us to our first point this morning, I believe. I missed a slide here. Okay. Good servants of Christ Jesus suffer for the gospel. Good servants of Christ Jesus suffer for the gospel. We've got this tendency to think a little bit that the gospel and the cross are primarily for unbelievers. You have a drug problem, you need to go to the cross. You're not saved, you need to go to the cross. You're an unbeliever, you need to hear the gospel and you need to come to the cross. But as we grow in our Christian lives, the tendency is to think, well, that's what we needed when we first got saved. And it shows, brothers and sisters, it shows in our marriages, in our ministries, in our worship. The cross and the gospel very frequently become secondary. And the things that we need to do become primary. And our lives and our marriages and our families and our churches very much and very frequently become about our desires, our wants, and our agendas. And that, brothers and sisters, is why many times there are disappointments and discouragements and conflicts. Surprise, surprise. We tend to think that the gospel and the cross are what unbelievers and really big sinners need. And we also have a tendency to think that suffering is for losers and those who do not manage their lives or ministries properly. Oh, if you only had a little more faith. Oh, if you only prayed a little bit more. Oh, if only you did A, B, C, D, and E and studied the Bible a little bit more and made it here, your life would be easier and your life would be better and you wouldn't be having the difficulties and the conflicts that you're engaged in. But is that, brothers and sisters, really true? Brothers and sisters, we see this mentality when life and family and ministry get hard. What do we tend to do? We tend to, and this is me too, we tend to run away, we tend to hide, or we tend to resist. We put boundaries up. Or at best we try and do that Asian thing and we try and suck it up until the cloud is passed and the storm is gone and the sun comes out and the trip to Hawaii is back. Essentially what we're trying to do when we do this, brothers and sisters, is we're trying to manage, we're trying to control, we're trying to mitigate the things in our lives, our marriages, our ministries that we do not like or we do not want. But in First and Second Timothy, the Apostle Paul does something remarkably different as his life and the life of his true child in the faith, the one he loves dearly, Timothy, gets very hard and difficult. He brings Timothy and he brings us back to the Gospel. Yes, the Gospel is needed by apostles. The Gospel is needed by senior pastors. The gospel is needed by elders and it's needed by deacons and it's needed by wives and husbands and it's needed by all men every minute and every moment. 
Why? Because it is, brothers and sisters, the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And Paul's going to go on and point out to Timothy, the same power that saved you is the power that you need to walk through this storm. It's what the teachers in Ephesus had forgotten. The Apostle Paul in these verses that we just read, what he does, he starts to remind Timothy. And he reminds us what we often forget and neglect when life is hard. When life is hard, frequently our primary focus is how do we get out of this? What do we need to do to fix this? And yet here the Apostle Paul takes Timothy back to God working in the lives of his mother and his grandmother. He comes and he reminds Timothy who Jesus is. Timothy, remember, Jesus is not just your Savior, He's also your Lord. Who's going to save you, Timothy? It's Jesus. He reminds Timothy what God has done in Timothy's life and, and, and how He's done it and planned it and all set it up long before Timothy was born. He reminds Timothy what God has done. He saved us by giving us the life of His Son. He's crucified His Son for your sin and mine, Timothy. He's raised Christ from the grave and He has raised you up with Him. He reminds Timothy who we are. And it's something, brothers and sisters, when we're getting pushed back and things are difficult that we can easily forget because we listen to what everybody else is saying, those who are ashamed of the gospel, and we forget what matters most is who God says we are. And this is what Paul reminds Timothy. Timothy, they're saying that you can't preach. Timothy, They're saying that your rhetoric is not great and that there are others who have far greater skills in rhetoric than you. They're saying this talk of the cross is shameful, embarrassing, get with it, Timothy. They're saying, look at you, Timothy, your mentor is in jail, nobody's around him, and he's about to get his head cut off, and nobody thinks that highly, even those he mentored and discipled. What's Paul's response? Timothy, remember who you are. Remember what God says. You are a child of God. No one can take away your salvation. And the proof of that is you are filled with the Spirit of God. Timothy, remember what God has done. Brothers and sisters, the Gospel is not just for beginners. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes at every step and stage of our walk with Christ. And in 2 Timothy 1, after the Apostle Paul has reminded Timothy of the Gospel, what does the Apostle Paul do next? He literally commands Timothy not to be ashamed of it. And then he literally commands Timothy to suffer together with him for the gospel. Be one thing if you suffer together with me for the gospel. But when Paul's writing this, things are ugly. His situation is far more discouraging and depressing by the world's standards. He's in prison and he's saying, suffer with me together for the gospel. And when he says, 
suffer together with me for the gospel. Verse 8 and 9. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner. See here, Paul sees himself not as a prisoner of Nero. He is a prisoner of Christ. He's in jail because Christ has put him there. But share in suffering for the gospel. And when he talks about suffering for the gospel, he's talking about enduring evil or punishment from another. For what reason? He's not talking about suffering for your sin. There are consequences to our sin. There are consequences to living apart from Christ. There are consequences of living an idle life or a foolish life, which are written throughout the Proverbs. That is not the suffering that he is talking about here. I had a hard day in work. My boss didn't like me. Those are hard, brothers and sisters, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about suffering and being punished for faithfully keeping and teaching Christ's commands. He's talking about suffering for being a good servant, an exemplary servant of Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we live in an evil and fallen world. We know that. We're living it right now in COVID-19 and the craziness of these elections. We will all suffer. It's inevitable. There is no testing or temptation, but such as is common to man, we're all going to die, brothers and sisters. We are all going to experience loneliness, and we are all going to experience pain. But what Paul points out here is what separates a good servant of Christ Jesus is that when they suffer, they are suffering not for themselves or the things of this world. They are not suffering for their fleshly desires. They are not suffering for their flesh. They are suffering for the good news of Jesus Christ. And they are suffering to give that good news of Jesus Christ to someone else. Like their Lord and Savior. They are giving their lives so that others might know freedom from sin and the love of God. Something that others would never know without the good news of Jesus Christ. Eric asked this question earlier as he led us in praise this morning. Brothers and sisters, what are you suffering for? We're all to some degree, and this is not to trivialize it, brothers and sisters, many of you have many challenges that your families are going through. Families in the hospital, families who are sick, challenges that are there. And that's not to trivialize it. But it's worth stopping and asking ourselves, brothers and sisters, what are we suffering for? And it's with these God-breathed words, the Apostle Paul, as he gives this command to Timothy, doesn't say to Timothy, Timothy, you're having a hard time. Good job, Timothy. Timothy, you need a break or a sabbatical. Timothy, step back for a little bit. No, he says, Timothy, suffer with me for the gospel. And what Paul is doing is he shares this with Timothy. And let's understand, he's setting this in within the gospel context. And we're going to address that in a moment. He's showing Timothy... That suffering for the gospel is not an exception. 
It's God's purpose and plan for all good servants. If it's good enough for God's Son, it's good enough for all of God's children. This is the cross. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the Apostle Paul's life. And so he writes in verse 10 through 12, he says, The gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, this is why I suffer as I do. The point the Apostle Paul's making to Timothy is the gospel on the cross, Timothy, is not just for apostles. It's not just for missionaries who go to Middle Eastern countries. The gospel and the cross are for all of us. The gospel and the cross are God's calling for all His children. And you can't separate the cross from the gospel. But the good news is, unlike the world, God does not call us to suffer alone. He does not call us to suffer by our own power because He knows we could never do it. The good news of the gospel is that God calls us to suffer together by the power of God. And that brings us to our second point for this morning. Good servants of Christ Jesus suffer for the gospel together by the power of God. Good servants of Christ Jesus suffer for the gospel together by the power of God. Brothers and sisters, the world's way of handling suffering, the flesh, our sinful nature, our pride, the way of suffering, is typically to run as fast as you can in the opposite direction. And if you can't run, then distract yourself as much as you possibly can with whatever entertainment is out there. Or do what you can to temporarily fix it yourself. We see this trend is celebrated very frequently and it's very frequently celebrated in ministry. I know it well. It's celebrated. On the one hand, you have the wounded healer. We've got to get in and we've got to save this person. Let's drop everything we have. Let's run out and do whatever we can to rescue this situation. On the other hand, there's those who are sitting by themselves looking at pornography. And brothers and sisters, those two extremes, they're two sides of the same coin. We condemn the one and we applaud the other. But in the eyes of the Lord, they're both contrary to God's Word and His remedy. Because in both those situations, who's the hero? We are. I'm the guy who's saving someone else. I'm the guy who's running out at two in the morning to sit there and hold your hand. I'm the guy who's sitting there alone looking at something to distract me or give me a moment of pleasure so I don't have to think about the things in my life that I cannot fix. The two sides of the same coin that they appeal to our vanity and our flesh. And they both promote this doctrine that somehow apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from the cross, on our own, we can save the day We can save the ministry, we can save the church, we can save the pulpit, we can save the mission. Brothers, I know it well. Why do you think I became a physician? Because we're going to go out and we're going to save lives. And what a lie that is at the end of the day. 
And what happens, brothers and sisters, when we don't save the lives? What happens when the patient comes in who you work all night and do everything you can and at the end of the day they pass away in your hands? What happens to the family members and those who you pray for and you minister to and you share the gospel and you say you're heading for a train wreck or a car crash? If you persist in this sin, you are going to destroy yourself and those around you and the person does not listen. What happens when we fail? How often do we find ourselves slinking off to our holes by ourselves, ashamed of ourselves because we couldn't save what we set out to do? Proverbs 18.1 comes to mind. Those who isolate themselves seek their own desires. Those who isolate themselves seek their own desires. Whose desires were we trying to fulfill? Because... With God's desire, His desire is that you would suffer together by His power and not yours. Because His desire is that you would see and know the fullness of His love for you. And we can't see that when we're busy loving ourselves and what we do and what we can accomplish and what we want. Brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul shows Timothy and us, gospel suffering, the cross, is different in every way. It is a suffering, brothers and sisters, that separates us from our sin, that separates us from our works, that separates us from our achievement, that separates us from our power in order to unite us with Christ and to unite us with His family and His children the local church. And there's only one way that can happen, brothers and sisters. It's not through our programs, our plans, our discipleship groups. It can only happen, brothers and sisters, by the power of God, by the gospel. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, and I'm reading this repeatedly, okay? And there's a reason. Therefore, verse 8 and 9, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. He doesn't say, don't be ashamed about what you've done at your church. Don't be ashamed about all that you've accomplished. Don't be ashamed that you've given it your best shot. No, he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share or join me in suffering for the gospel. By the power of God. Brothers and sisters, why does God bring all His children to the cross? There's no exceptions. Because He loves us. And it's because we so desperately need it. And because there's no other way to be forgiven or set free from our sins or united with Him. And throughout the Gospel, we see that Jesus shepherds the disciples by repeatedly bringing them to the message of the cross. You read through any of the Gospels and you see that the better part of the Gospels, what Jesus is doing is He's bringing them either to parables about the kingdom or He's bringing them to the cross. And He brings them repeatedly to that message of the cross. 
And as he does so, that message of the cross by God's power changes the disciples. And it does so first by testing them and then correcting them. That's what the cross does. This is one of the reasons God brings us to the cross. He brings us to the cross so that His power will change us. He brings us by His power, and He does what He does is He begins with that cross to test our hearts, to expose our hearts and show us what's in our hearts. And then He does so not just to shame us, He does to correct us and to point us to what we so desperately need. The idea of testing is to expose what is in our hearts. The idea of correcting is to set something that is broken or veering off and going in the wrong direction to setting it straight to go in the right direction. And this, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus was doing in Matthew 16 in the Scripture that Kevin read earlier this morning. How does it start? He begins to show His disciples. Have a look at it. Matthew 16, verse 21. Jesus begins to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem, that He must suffer at the hands of the elders and the high priests, that He must be killed, and on the third day be raised. And that must, that word must, refers to the idea or the, the, the concept that this has to happen to fulfill Scripture. It's got to happen because God has planned it this way. And what's Peter, speaking on the behalf of the disciples likely, what's their response? Verse 22, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Well, Jesus says in another portion of the Gospels, Out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. So as the disciples say, far be it from you, Lord, or as Peter says that, this shall never happen to you. As they resist the cross, what are they really saying? What does this conversation, this message of the cross, what does the gospel expose in the hearts of the disciples? in the motives of the disciples, in the desires, and the doctrine of the disciples. Quite frankly, it reveals much of what is in all of our hearts frequently. It's not just the disciples. It's the conviction that suffering for the gospel is not desirable. It's the conviction that suffering for the gospel is not deserved. It's the conviction that suffering for the gospel is not necessary. It's the conviction that suffering for the gospel is not fair. This shall never happen to you. Far be it from you, Lord. Jesus, why do we need the cross? We already follow You. We already serve You. We already teach in Sunday school. We already preach the Gospel. We already do miracles in Your name. We already have crowds following us. Jesus, why would You want to ruin a good thing with the cross? Peter pulls Jesus aside. When you read the text, he pulls him aside. He's having a Matthew 18 with Jesus. And as you read through the Scriptures, you see as Jesus brings the cross, the disciples resist, they push back, and, and, and they try and manage Jesus. 
Brothers and sisters, how often do we try and manage Jesus? We hear what He says, we don't like what He says, so we find another uh, uh, interpretation or we wriggle with it or we leave it or we do whatever we can to say, well, does He really mean that? And brothers and sisters, I'm there with you. I shudder to think of these things. Do I want my family to suffer? Do I want them to suffer because of ministry or allegedly the choices I've, I've made? Jesus, You don't need to save us. We're good enough already. Let us save You. In many ways, that's very much what Peter's saying. Jesus, we're here to help You. Let us help You. Listen to what we have to say. He's ashamed of the cross. And the doctrine that is being put out there, brothers and sisters, is this. It's Jesus plus us, disciples who have listened to a few sermons and gone out and done a little ministry. Jesus plus disciples equals success. Jesus plus our performance and our words equals success. And brothers and sisters, it's not just the disciples or the church in Ephesus. The problem in the church in Ephesus is that they're ashamed with the gospel. They're enamored with their own programs, their plans, their teaching. They're enamored with their power. It's the same package deal with every cult and every religion. A little bit of God, a little bit of us, everything's going to be great. You're not doing great? Put a little more of you in there. Work a little bit harder. Pray a little bit more. Have a few more programs. Do A, B, C, D, and E. Follow the method and plan and all the books we buy. Plus a little bit of Jesus. We're good. Right? And brothers and sisters, that's the prosperity gospel. It's a celebration of our power. And over time, Jesus gets less and less and it becomes more about us and us. This is the idea of we serve in areas of ministry where we feel there is a need. Well, they need my help. They're not doing so well. Well, Jerry Bridges in his book, Transforming Grace, writes, At best, he's talking about this mentality, the Christian life is viewed as a mixture of personal performance and God's grace. At best, the Christian life is viewed as a mixture of personal performance and God's grace. And the formula that's being suggested here is grace plus personal performance equals sanctification and success. Brothers and sisters, it's the good enough gospel. Jesus, you should be happy with me. I tried my best, I did my best. It should be good enough. My best plus Jesus makes everything good. Brothers and sisters, why do we resist the cross? Why do we resist the gospel? Because we would like to believe somewhere that we are good enough, that our best is good enough. We resist the cross because we love our sin. And we believe in ourselves and our own power more than we believe in Jesus. If we believed in Jesus, that only He can save us, 
we would not have a problem with the cross because that's the message of the cross. The message of the cross is you can't do this. You're inadequate. You're not just not good enough. You're not good. You're not just not good enough. I'm not good enough, so give me a little Jesus, I'll add up. You're not good. This is the point that Jesus makes as He corrects the disciples in Matthew 16. What does He say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, a stumbling block, a snare. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Brothers and sisters, why does God bring all His good servants to the cross? He does so because He loves us. He does so because we can't get there on our own. We don't want to go. And so we need His power to get us there. But He does so because what we so desperately need in our marriages, our ministry, our church is found in Christ and is not found in us. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. God brings us to the cross or He uses the cross to make us good servants of Christ Jesus. God uses the cross or He brings us to the cross to make us good servants of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.8, the Apostle says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the Gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus, before the ages began. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us, completed action, done, in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Brothers and sisters, God brings us to the cross, and He calls us to share in the suffering for the Gospel together with others like the Apostle Paul and others who are suffering for the sake of the Gospel. Children of God, faithfully keeping and teaching the Word of God without compromise. Suffering for following Christ. He calls us, brothers and sisters, to the cross. Because as He does so, The cross brings us, brothers and sisters, to the end of ourselves. And it's only as we get to the end of ourselves that we begin to see and appreciate that everything we need, God has already given us in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we can't see that when we're filled with ourselves. We can't see that when ministry and church and marriage is all about us being the hero in the things we do. And we can begin to see it when we fail miserably like Peter did. Peter followed Jesus. And we 
beat down on Peter, but you know, Peter got further than all the other disciples. All the other disciples long gone. Peter's still in the courtyard of the high priest, watching the one he loves, believing somehow he's got the power to turn things around. And then he betrays Jesus three times and he hears the cock crow. And he weeps and weeps and weeps. Because as Jesus goes to the cross and he tries to keep up with Jesus, he realizes he lacks the power to do it. He has come to the end of himself. And when Jesus returns for Peter, after he is risen from the grave, and he feeds Peter, and he cooks for Peter... Such a sweet image. Jesus is there cooking hot cakes and fish for Peter. He's providing for him. Everything that Peter needs, Jesus is giving. And he asks him that question, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And Peter is restored. And he's restored very clearly with the understanding. He can't live this life. He can't be a good servant of Christ Jesus. He can't honor the Lord with anything that He brings to the table. The only good thing He can offer is His Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you haven't been to the cross, if we run every time we suffer for the sake of faithfully keeping and teaching God's Word, we lash out and we resist. We're resisting Christ and God's love for us. The same is true, brothers and sisters, for the difficulties we face in our marriages, our parenting, all of these other things. If all we do is strive to make our lives easier, and we never come on our knees to the foot of the cross and the end of ourselves and come to Jesus and say, Jesus, get me out of the way. You take over and you run this show because I'm making a mess of things very clearly. And what my children need, and my wife needs, and the church needs, they need you, Jesus. They don't need me. And that's why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3.10. He's talking about deacons, and he's advising Timothy on who should be a deacon. He says, and let them also be tested first. And let them also be tested first. Why? Because what the church needs, brothers and sisters, is not another pastor or deacon or an elder. What the church needs is the good news of Jesus Christ. The church needs the cross. And the church needs the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that's the problem in the church in Ephesus. What was happening in 1 Timothy, the whole 1 Timothy is, Timothy, get them back to the gospel. Get them back to the gospel. They're wandering away. They're wandering away because they're trying to find a way aside from the cross. Some way we can do this without having to suffer. Somehow to do this without being embarrassed. Somehow to do this without Jesus. And Paul's burden, his concern is, look, you step away from the gospel. You step away from the cross. You step away from everything God has already given you in Christ. Brothers, what good is a flashlight without batteries? The power of the church is the power of the gospel. 
What good is a car? Whether it's a Tesla or a Ferrari, what good is it without a car battery that works? It is no longer a luxury car. It is a problem sitting in your driveway. What good is the pulpit, brothers and sisters, or an elder or a deacon without the gospel? A good servant of Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters, is a servant who God has brought to the cross and has made that person by the gospel a good servant of Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters, it shows. It shows in their life. Where does prayer fit in in their life? Prayer is that expression. I can't do it on my own. I need to pray. Where does the confidence and courage come from? I don't have that confidence in myself. I can't fix your problem, but Jesus can. And He will in His time and in His way. I know in whom I have believed. Where does the compassion come come from? That compels us to pray for the salvation of all men. It comes from the cross, brothers and sisters. It comes from a man who says, I am the chief among sinners. You may look good on the outside. You still need Jesus. You may have all the money in the world. You still need Jesus. You may have been to seminary. You still need Jesus. So I'm going to pray for you. Because I know I needed Jesus. And I made a mess of it without Him. So I'm going to pray for you because you need it. Brothers and sisters, that's where true compassion comes from. It comes from the cross. It comes from the heart of Christ. Brothers and sisters, have you been to the cross? I'm going to close with this. I was reading through Nabil Qureshi's book, No God But One. And Nabil Qureshi, you know, is a young man who the Lord saved. He grew up in a Muslim family. He went to medical school. And the Lord saved him. And he talked about spending time in Texas with a brother of his when what came on the news was a reporting about a man named Ronnie Smith, a Texan, who had been out for a morning jog when gunmen in a black jeep targeted and killed him. This is while he was running in Libya. The news reported that Ronnie had graduated from the University of Texas with a master's degree and was teaching chemistry in Benghazi. He said, at this my ears pricked up. Benghazi was a highly unstable war-torn city where militias held more power than the government. Why would anyone go there to teach? And so he went online to search about this young man, Ronnie Smith, because he was curious. And he said, my suspicions were confirmed. Ronnie Smith was a Christian who wanted to serve the Libyan people. He was a deacon at his church in Austin. He was a deacon at his church in Austin. And he took his faith seriously because Jesus was willing to die for those who sinned against him. Ronnie believed that following Jesus meant being willing to risk even his life to serve those who may even be his enemies. The gift that God had given him was to teach chemistry. So he decided to serve the Libyans as a teacher of chemistry. He goes on and writes, What was his motivation? And he said, as he went and researched further, 
He says, it turns out that Ronnie, in a response to a survey a few years before his death, recommended a sermon by John Piper titled, Doing Missions When Dying is Gain. And about this sermon, Ronnie said, through these sermons like these, God called me and my family to unreached people. And in that sermon, John Piper made the point that Jesus dies and He suffers for people all over the world in every nation. His followers are called to do the same if they wish to truly follow Him. The reason why Christians can follow Jesus boldly into death is because we are not worried about trying to save ourselves. The gospel is that God has already promised us salvation through His infinite mercy and grace. Christ loved us and gave His life for us. He has called us to do the same. And then Nabil Qureshi goes on and shows us the note that his wife wrote to all those and publicly posted of saying how she forgave those who killed her husband because Christ had first forgiven her and her husband and how they loved the people who killed her husband. Brothers and sisters, we think of that for those who go. But the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, it's not just for those who go. It's for every true child of God. It's the good news of the gospel. Christ loves you. He's given His love to you. And He's given His love to you so that you can give it to others who so desperately need it. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a Savior. What a King. You have given us everything we need to love You, to walk with You, and to share You with others. And You have given it to us by way of the cross. Lord Jesus, may we celebrate it and may we share it with others. In Your name we pray. Amen. As, as Pastor Mark said, um, God brings his servants to the cross um, because he loves us. And it's by his power that we deny ourselves 